23, Episode 4, Loose Ends. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis concerning the January 6, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The introduction to this week's show was int- uh, provided by Lizzo, who played a glass flute that once belonged to President Madison. Last episode... I had said that October would be a significant month because the Oath Keepers trial begins and also because the last committee hearing before the election will also take place. Now, I'd actually hoped that this episode would concern that committee hearing, um, but, you know, not to worry, there's still plenty of material to review. There is, of course, first and foremost, the Oath Keepers trial, but I'd also like to take the opportunity to recap an occasional theme of the podcast, various violent normies who are critical to the capital attack, and the possible steps taken by plotters to make sure they were present on that day. Um, Basically, since I've mentioned so many of these defendants so many times, I decided it would be a good idea to go back and review the court records and see where they are now, how the cases against these defendants are proceeding. But before we get to that, I'd like to do a couple of notes on the next hearing, um, which of course was originally scheduled for 1 p.m. on Wednesday, September 28th. Now, this hearing was postponed. Uh, It is to be the ninth hearing of 2022. Um, Generally speaking, in the ordering and the counting, uh, we tend to not mention the first hearing, of course, which was in the summer of 2021, um, simply because even though that was a significant hearing and you had the four officers there and the nation stood riveted, it really wasn't an investigative hearing. Uh, they were hearing directly from witnesses, but that was before the investigative work of the, of the committee really began. So I, I know there's a sense in which, well, I, I don't think it's intended as a slight, um, but in the committee's own uh, nomenclature, their, their own references, they talk about that this particular hearing uh, numbering. And so this is going to be the ninth hearing. Now, again, this was postponed um, two weeks from its original date, from September 28th, uh, purportedly due to Hurricane Ian. Now, the eighth public hearing was held on July 21st, so 84 days in total will have elapsed between the eighth hearing and the ninth hearing mainly due to the August recess and the two-week delay that's been attributed to Hurricane Ian. Um, you know, I said that this is, feels a bit like a freshman asking for an extension on their term paper. Um, of course, you know, if you're a cynic, I mean, it, it might seem odd. Uh, you know, um, it's not like it would be inappropriate to do while there is a hurricane and a cleanup. Uh, it's not as if these are celebratory occasions of fun and mirth, and it would therefore be inappropriate to hold the hearing in the midst of a significant national disaster hitting the third most populous state in the nation. Um, you know, th- I mean, that is significant in and of itself, right? And, of course, Florida is key home, key place uh, for you know, many people who are involved. Uh, many of the defendants are from Florida, and, of course, a, a very critical person uh, who's involved in this series of cases is also a Florida resident. Um, now, you know, I, I think actually that the most likely explanation 
uh, is simply that the fear that the, the event itself wouldn't get significant media coverage or adequate media coverage uh, because there would be just drowned out in a deluge of hurricane news. So, you know, that's, that's one possibility uh, for the delay. Um, even so, even if that was the main concern, the hearing well could have been held a week later, right? Not necessarily you know, two weeks later. You know, once the flood of hurricane news had subsided a little bit. Now, assuming that the, the committee was ready to go, you know, there's no substantive reason why. Um, I mean, the committee would have to juggle its session with the legislative calendar, but, you know, these kind of things are absolutely normal in the work of the House. So, you know, thinking about why, it, it's worthwhile to take note, I think, that this isn't the first unexpected fiddling around with the hearing schedule. The, the hearing originally scheduled for June 15th, 2022, was postponed to June 16th, 2022. And according to Zoe Lofgren, that hearing was postponed due to the need to allow for more time for the staff to collate the video materials. Now, that pretext seemed a little bit unlikely at the time, and even more so in retrospect. Originally, that hearing was supposed to be about the plot to insert Jeffrey Clark into the Attorney General's office. That was material which wound up going into the fifth hearing. Instead, the June 16th hearing featured testimony from Judge Ludig, who gave some compelling testimony about the absurd and unconstitutional plan to have Mike Pence determine the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, as well as evidence on the pressure campaign to get him to do so. So they not only changed, in other words, the date of the hearing, but the substance of the hearing as well. So, you know, that seems like there was, I don't know if it was a mix-up, um, but, you know, definitely they, there was a substantive reason for that change. So I think that's probably something like what's happened here. There's a substantive reason that is basically unknowable as to why they want to change the date. They need some more time to work on something. Um, you'll also remember the unexpected change in the witness lineup on the, for the June 13th hearing when Bill Stepien bowed out because his wife was supposedly in labor, as was reported by Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. Um, now, there's no word on whether Bill Stepien's wife has actually delivered the baby. I've seen no birth announcement, nothing. But, you know, I understand that having a young baby is challenging, but if Bill Stepien's wife has been in active labor for five months, it really is a cause for concern, right? I mean, he was canceled, and then he still apparently hasn't been back. Uh, I did find that they were registered at Target, and it does seem that most of the items on their baby registry were actually bought. So it's just the way that this story has disappeared is really, really weird. Um, apparently, everybody has forgotten that Bill Stepien exists. Yeah, if he was ready to go in June, why hasn't he gone since then? It's an interesting question. Um, you know, my, my thought here might simply be that they think he's too valuable a witness to use in these committee hearings, and instead he has material that would be more relevant um, if there's ever an indictment, and so he, they're saving him for the Department of Justice. So that's my hope about Bill Stepien. But again, unexpected changes. They've had changes with regard to timing. They've had changes with, with regard to the witness lineup. 
So we don't know. I mean, why would they delay two weeks? You know, assuming that this the the business with Ian is at least a part of a red herring. Um, you know, they may have a new witness. They may have new evidence, um, or maybe that they they have a witness who they decided uh, you know to withdraw. Right, uh, witness who decided to cooperate is no longer cooperating. In any event, the committee has rescheduled the hearing for Thursday, October 13th at 1 p.m. And it's been reported, but not confirmed, that no witnesses are actually going to appear live. And I think part of why this delay may have occurred is simply because this is the last one before the election, and it may have been decided already that this is going to be the last committee hearing Period. They are going to finally produce a report at some time. So that being the case, it may well be that what they're doing is crafting their closing arguments and that this is very important. They want to take the time to get it right. Now, there's been some jibber-jabber about what the actual substance of this hearing is going to be. Um, there's been talk, for example, that this is the Roger Stone hearing. Right. We had a, like you know hearing on Proud Boys, Oath Keepers. Are we going to have one just on, let's say, Roger Stone? Maybe a hearing just on Mike Flynn. Maybe a hearing on Mike Bennett, uh, uh, Steve Bennett. Excuse me, Mike Flynn, Steve Bennett. Who knows? Um, I, I think it will probably be a closing argument. But there are some things that I have wanted to see that that we still haven't seen. And if they're not in the hearings, maybe it'll be in the report. But the Green Team. Right, uh, the Green Team is the team that is investigating the money, and you know, as they always say, follow the money. There's going to be a money trail, and why, you know, other than some uh, tempting, you know, nuggets about Alex Jones and uh, certain other donors, the the public's heiress, um, we haven't really heard a lot from the Green Team. And, yeah, there's been some excellent reporting. There's been better reporting on it than what we've seen coming from the committee. The committee has been radio silent with regard to the paper trail of the money. So, you know, again, maybe they're saving that material for the Department of Justice. Um, but, you know, it would have been great to see at least some of that in at least one hearing. So, with regard to what we can expect from the hearing upcoming this week? I don't know. It could be anything. Uh, my hope is that they're going to have some more explosive testimony, something as effective as Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. But, um, you know, again, reportedly no live witnesses, so this may just be a summation. It, and I know that they have, you know, saved like some explosive little bits and nuggets here and there. Occasionally, so you know, uh, I think they, many former prosecutors, uh, both on staff and on the committee itself, um, I hope they've they've got the good sense to do that. I'm sure that there will be new revelations, but what I anticipate is basically closing arguments, and maybe they'll start looking at the money, and maybe they'll start looking at people like Mike Flynn, especially uh, Steve Bannon. Um, and, of course, Roger Stone, uh, although, you know, again, perhaps somewhat to a lesser degree.
Again, we don't know. We don't know what their theory of the case is. My hope is they're going to lay out their closing arguments, and after the the, the uh, election, the midterm elections, they'll actually start issuing indictments to you know the next level up the food chain. All right. So let's move on to the numbers this week. Now, as always, take a, a moment. And as always, these are sourced courtesy of Sedition Track at SeditionTracker.com. So as of this hearing, as of today, there have been 885 individuals charged, an increase of 14 since the last tally. There have been a total of 405 indictments, up 12. Six deceased, no change there. One dismissal, same. One acquittal, same. 438 convictions, an increase of 24 since the last tally, and 279 sentencings, an increase of 21 since the last tally. So we're at a point now where both convictions and sentencings are keeping pace with one another, and both are happening faster, of course, much faster than new arrests. Now, there's a lot to cover in the Oath Keepers trial, uh, and I'll be focusing a lot on individual inmates later in the episode, um, but I would like to put a little attention on one very significant plea deal that has occurred recently, that of Jeremy Bertino, 43, of Belmont, my home state of North Carolina. Uh, Belmont's located between Charlotte and Gastonia. So Bertino is a proud boy, and he is reportedly entering the Witness Protection Program and is to be, remain on bond pending his sentencing. Bertino pleaded to seditious conspiracy and unlawful possession of a firearm by a felon. His statement of offense notes that he is, of course, a high-ranking Proud Boy, having achieved the fourth degree of Proud Boy member status, uh, which entails getting into a fight for his gang. Now, the plea agreement itself includes the same boilerplate description of the Proud Boys that we've seen time and time again in these charging documents, and I've still got the same issues with it. Uh, it includes the, the fact that the Proud Boys, quote, describes itself as a pro-Western fraternal organization for men who refuse to apologize for creating the modern world, a.k.a. Western chauvinists, end quote. Now again, this is garbage. It's a gang. They should stop pretending that it's a fraternal organization uh, like, you know, the Elks or the Masons or the Moose. The doc document also mentions that Bertino's a fourth-degree Proud Boy without ever mentioning, again, what it takes to become a fourth-degree Proud Boy, which is to, you know, get into a gang fight. Anyway, the statement of facts also includes the detail that Bertino was present in D.C., when Enrique Terrio burned a BLM banner that the group stole on December 12, 2020. And also that Bertino was stabbed during that visit, um, and also noted that, except for you know the fact that he was stabbed at D.C. on the 12th, Bertino certainly would have traveled to the District of Columbia on January 6th. He was still recovering from his injuries. Now, I'd like to spend you know, just a little bit of time on this statement of offense, um, because Bertino is a top leader, and he was in on all of the planning and his group's activities 
leading up to January 6th, even if he didn't personally take part in the attack itself. And so he's going to be able to give good evidence on all these subjects at trial. Also, again, in many of these cases, we've seen that this it really anticipates the government's case. Knowing what the witnesses are going to testify to, you get a good sense of what the case itself is going to be. Um, we've seen this in the Oath Keeper's case, and, you know, again, that is a case that has gone to trial, is currently in trial. And if you read those documents, it's not much of a surprise. Same thing uh, with regard to the Proud Boys seditious conspiracy case. So, uh, again, refresh your memory, and this uh, uh, pertains to both the seditious conspiracy cases for the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Seditious conspiracy is defined as an effort by two or more people to, quote, conspire to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, or to levy war against them, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. Now, I, and I'm going to reiterate this when I talk about the Oath Keepers trial, but that's quite a mouthful. But the key element of that, uh, and what a good prosecutor is going to do for the jury, is to simply lay out the elements of the crime. So, did they use force? Yes. Did they intend to hinder or delay the execution of any law of the United States? Yes. That's it. So the defense is going to, you know, throw down a whole bunch of garbage about how they were trying to overthrow the government. It's like, that's not the government's case, neither the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys' case. Did they use force to hinder the uh, execution of any law of the United States? Certainly. They certainly did. They certainly tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as required by law and the Constitution of the United States itself. So those are clear questions. And the testimony in both cases is going to be directed narrowly to those questions, despite the efforts of the defense to kind of, you know, uh, throw up a smokescreen of ambiguity. It's not really ambiguous. So we see this element of the crime as a through line in Bertino's statement of offense, that he knew that the Proud Boys, quote, ex exhibited, quote, a willingness to resort to unlawful conduct, increasingly that included a willingness to use and promote violence to achieve political objectives. End quote. So the statement also notes that Bertino joined the Ministry of Self-Defense, MOSD chat, that was composed of high-ranking Proud Boys on December 23rd, 2020. And, of course, just like with the Oath Keepers, the government has these encrypted chats which were not only part of the means by which the conspiracy itself was conducted, but are now a vital evidentiary record used to demonstrate the necessary intent element, um, the intent to oppose by force the government's attempt to carry out the laws of the United States. And that, again, is the element of seditious conspiracy. Now, anyway, that part of it, of course, isn't really new, except now we know that Bertino is going to be available to testify to the legitimacy of the chats, as well as, uh, you know, certifying that they are actual communications between the co-conspirators. And we'll also get some of his other testimony as well, of course, such as his observation that, quote, during the fall and winter of 2020, Bertino noticed that members of the Proud Boys 
including, but not limited to, MOSFD membership, were becoming more extreme and uh, aggressive in their views, end quote. He's also going to testify that he was party to conversations in which his conspirators pledged that they were planning to use violence, quote, affirmatively rather than simply defensively. Now, again, much of this is known from previous documents, but the, the fact here is that Bertino was a party to all of it. So his cooperation and plea deal is highly significant. It includes very specific plans for violence at the Capitol on January 6th. Indeed, in terms of that element, I would say that the case against the, the, the Proud Boys is even more solid than that against the Oath Keepers, which is already a very solid case. That's the core element of seditious conspiracy. Were they opposing the government by use of force? Yes. Okay, that's it. Done. And now let's move on to the topic of the Oath Keepers trial which, of course, uh, already started with jury selection. And we've had three days of testimony so far. Of course, testimony will resume on Tuesday. The prosecution is laying out its case, and they are going to, again, make it as simple as possible. Did they oppose any law by force? And the answer is clearly yes. I've already gone over most of the evidence in this. Um, there's some evidence that um, I haven't reviewed, such as the Friends of Roger Stone chat. The group that includes uh, 47 people, to include Jeremy K. Terrio, Owen Schroyer, uh, that of course uh, would be a, an associate of Alex Jones, uh, Ali Alexander, um, and 47 people who were uh, presumably intimately involved in the planning of January 6th, and of course leading up to it, right? And that is part of the government's case. The government's case is, of course, that's not just about January 6th, that beginning... Um, as early as November 9th, and possibly earlier, the Oath Keepers, uh, particularly Rhodes, resolved to prevent Joe Biden from assuming office by any means necessary. And so, again, a number of inflammatory postings uh, on the Oath Keepers website, public comments by Rhodes himself, of course, to include the events of the uh, December 12th uh, Million Maga March, uh, the March Force, which, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Jeremy Bertino uh, wound up getting himself stabbed at. So the prosecution case is not particularly unexpected, uh, nor is it, uh, you know, I, I think, particularly complex. You know, they're going to say that um, seditious conspiracy is two or more people conspiring to oppose the government, not necessarily overthrow it, right, but to oppose it, and... That's what they did. Um, and you've got the element of their acts, and the acts are certainly there. They enter the Capitol, not all of them, right? But Stuart Rhodes, for example, who didn't personally enter the Capitol, is nonetheless leading the entire endeavor. And then you've got the statements, which show intent. Now, you'll remember, of course, um, I did, I believe it was a season two, episode one, where I argued that you know they weren't going to charge seditious conspiracy. I outlined the case, uh, including all the stuff that has happened historically with seditious conspiracy and how this is often a landmark freedom of speech issue, but nonetheless, the government has prosecuted seditious conspiracy uh, against the blind sheik, for example, um, but failed to prosecute it in a Hooterie militia case. But this case is very different, arguably very different. 
in the Hooteria Militia case, first off, there is the element that um, this is basically the gang that couldn't shoot straight, right? Now, I'm sure the defense will try to say that this is also the gang that couldn't shoot straight. But the difference is you've got, you know, they're actually in D.C. They're not this localized militia that is nowhere near D.C. They've mobilized from all across the nation. They're there to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. And they're there with a huge mob. So there's an enormous material difference in terms of the facts of the case. And also the element of intent. It was hard to prove that the Hooteri militia actually had a serious intent to overthrow the U.S. government. With the Oath Keepers, there are chats by all of the, the lead defendants and this tranche of defendants and the, and the later tranche of defendants saying clearly that, clearly that they had seek to oppose the peaceful transfer of power by use of force. So that's the testimony that we've seen so far, right? We had that on opening day, and now we're starting to hear from witnesses, a couple of former Oath Keepers, um, and we also had some, some questions answered. Now there's this character, Abdullah Rashid, right? Now this is one where I was fairly confident about. So um, you'll go back to what I believe is the central piece of evidence. It was one of the first people to point people to this piece of evidence. Now everyone's paying attention to it. Um, this is the November 9th go-to meeting meeting that was organized by the Oath Keepers. And on the front of it, um, there is a cover sheet. And on the cover sheet, it says Stuart Rhodes, uh, gives Kelly Maggs the name, and then it lists William Todd Wilson's name. Now, I believed on that basis that William Todd Wilson was the likely source of the recording of the Oath Keepers meeting. That is not true. Now, this is one of the new pieces of information we've learned. In fact, it was uh, one Abdullah Rashid from West Virginia, who was an Oath Keeper who was invited to attend the meeting. So, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, I have racked my brain on this. Why is William Todd Wilson's name on that cover sheet? He doesn't appear to speak during the meeting. The only thing I can figure out is that, of course, William Todd Wilson, his case was unsealed following the release of this unredacted use of his name in the discovery material. And the only thing that I can figure out is that he was already cooperating at that point. We pretty much know that. There was a sealed case against him, uh, in which he pleaded to two counts. And there was then, um, you know, basically the idea, I, I suppose anyway, the reason why he is on that cover sheet is simply to establish that he was in that go-to meeting and would be a test testifying as to its veracity. That is my best guess. I don't know why his name is on that cover sheet anymore. I thought it would have been because he is the person who provided it. But no, it is one Abdullah Rashid of West Virginia. Someone who has a prior conviction for some kind of sexual assault on a minor. So not the world's greatest witness, but nonetheless, he has this tape. Uh, you know, again, it's the, the defendant's voices. I don't think anyone is questioning the legitimacy of that. Now, we've had the government present this information, and the defense has questioned it to say, well, okay, um, and, and, and again, it's some, Tarpley, for example, said, well, is this a government agent? Well, it's not a government agent. It's, this, it's a guy who was an oath keeper who was invited to attend the meeting of Dula Rashid. So the question is, hmm, uh, you know, 
Is this legitimate? I mean, can you know he's he's not really a note. Well, he was a note keeper, but you know they're they're trying to uh, say that again he wasn't authorized to attend the meeting somehow. When of course, how else would he gain access to the meeting? Um, and that that of course is nonsense. Rashid was also questioned as to whether or not he was eligible to be an oathkeeper because of his criminal conviction, therefore he can't be an oathkeeper. But again, your made-up rules for, you know, the He-Man Woman Haters Club doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter whether or not he lied on his membership application if he heard, uh, you know, the <laughs> seditious conspiracy forming and tried to send it to the government. So, you know, if they didn't actually ever accept testimony from criminals, now the criminal justice system would grind to a halt. Now, interestingly, of course, Abdul Rashid tried to give this to the FBI last fall. Um, it wasn't, they didn't follow up on this until after January 6th. So that is rather extraordinary. And hopefully the government will address it. I know that the defense will want to address that point uh, to draw more questions about the government's case. Um, we also heard uh, the FBI agent, a lead FBI agent on the case, review the same chats, which I've already reviewed um, at great length in the, the longest podcast episode that I have done to date. Um, and again, shows intent. All that goes to intent. There's all those inflammatory comments. They're going to say it's hyperbole. In fact, uh, at one point, I believe Tarpley used the word locker room talk. Rather unfortunate turn of phrase there. It's not locker, locker room talk if you've got guns in Virginia and you're planning on attacking D.C. Uh, with your QRFs and your stacks. So part of it is that the, the, the prosecution has one unified case. And the defense are kind of all over the place, right? So you've got Stuart Rhodes' attorneys who are going to try to make their case, right? They are there to serve Rhodes' interest. And Rhodes is all about this kooky theory that he can authorize, uh, that Trump could have authorized the Insurrection Act, and therefore this means that what they were doing was illegitimate. Was, was legitimate, sorry. And this is a claim that is a kind of public authority offense, uh, defense, which is something that Judge Mehta said, no, you can't do that. We're not having a public authority defense. That's not going to work. I he ruled on that. But this is their backdoor attempt to try to make that defense. But that is their claim, as one that Judge Mehta has told them he's skeptical about but will allow, right? So I expect that he's going to cover this in jury instructions. And again, I think some of the people who are covering this haven't listened. I've listened to almost all of the Oath Keeper hearings, and I really like Judge Mehta's take on this. Um, but, you know, the idea that they were lobbying is something which the judge is very skeptical about, and he can instruct the jury about what kind of things that they can take into account. Um, it, it lacks what we would call in the social sciences face validity. That is not lobbying. Um, they, yes, they posted a couple of open letters on the Oath Keepers website, but the main actions of the conspiracy were to collude with the people, the Friends of Roger Stone chat group, and to uh, confer amongst themselves 
and to bring weapons and to go to D.C. multiple times in preparation for the attack, to carry out reconnaissance. That's not lobbying. So the defense has this Insurrection Act thing, and you're going to have other attorneys or other defendants point out different things. They'll try to say that different Oath Keepers uh, helped police at various times. Um, some of them, you know, are not even in this group of defendants, right? But, you know, they're going to try to say that. And again, kind of absurd, right? Um, if, you know, I am Ryan Samsel, I push you down and then I pull you back up again, it doesn't matter, right? That, you know, that's not, it's not a thing that, you know, if you punch someone and then render first aid, that's still assault. So, you're, different attorneys are going to different cases, whereas, you know, I mean, I, I know that I'm sure they're working together, I'm sure they're cooperating, but it appears to be rather unfocused. Whereas the government's case is, when you get down to the root of it, it's pretty simple. Did they oppose the government, you know, by force? Well, you've got them on video. You know, they even dressed, I mean, if you want to lobby, wear a three-piece suit, right? Don't dress up in your fatigues with your plate carriers and your helmets. That is ridiculous. So, another key question is, you know, did they have a reasonable expectation that Trump was ever going to invoke the Insurrection Act? And it is a hole in the, um, the you know, Bright, Linder, and Tarpley's argument that this use of the Insurrection Act has never occurred, occurred before. So, what they're suggesting is that, well, he anticipated that the Insurrection Act would be used in this way, but that's never been done before. So the question is, did they conspire with Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act? Did they have a reasonable expectation that the Insurrection Act would be invoked? Moreover, they're in, I, I don't know if they, the government is going to do this, but historically, this has never happened. If you go back to the point where we actually had militias before the inception of the National Guard, um, they didn't gather all the militias around, and if they did, they certainly didn't self-mobilize. Uh, this was done under the cover of authority. If, you know, governors had ordered it, then perhaps it would be a thing that can happen, right? You have governors sending National Guard units to different places to help in different... That, but that's not what happened, right? If a self-mobilization of these people who have guns and grievances, that is not what is uh, really, you know, a, a thing that you can think would even happen under the Insurrection Act. So, um, you know, they're, they're arguing that this has never happened before. Sure, it's never happened before because you, you're making this defense based on something that's just profoundly ahistorical. There is no historical precedent for this interpretation of the Insurrection Act. In fact, George Washington himself, as much as Stuart Rhodes likes to invoke his name, George Washington was smacked down this kind of behavior. So anyway, that's a new thing that we found out. We found out that this uh, Rashid character, Rash Abdullah Rashid, who's the source of that go-to meeting. We also heard testimony from a Zimmerman, uh, this Zimmerman fellow who's a member of the Oath Keepers, and uh, claimed that uh, he was upset that uh, when the Oath Keepers attended the Million Magna March, they had Rhodes had announced this kind of a plan where they were going to 
somehow dress up as like uh, old ladies or push round strollers, and that this would necessarily mean that Antifa would attack them, and then they, they would beat them up. And Zimmerman didn't like this plan. He said it was entrapment. But it's a silly plan, right? Uh, you know, but it just goes to show, I mean, Rhodes is full of these these silly, absurd plans. Uh, you know, why Why does he think anything happens, right? Um, you know, but he's sure that if you dress up like an old lady, Antifa is just going to show up and, and beat you up. Um, Zimmerman also made a something that's genuinely new that we hadn't seen before, which was the claim that Rhodes told him that he was in contact with a member of the Secret Service. Now, the Secret Service, uh, in turn, has replied saying, well, we, you know, I'll link to an article uh, that includes their statement. Um, people contact us looking for information about different things, but this is very interesting given all of the controversy regarding the Secret Service text and the January 6th committee. So I expect we're going to hear about more about this at trial. So who's getting implicated here, right? Is the Secret Service implicated? Uh, are the other people that are friends of Roger Stone chat? Roger Stone himself? Are they implicated? So this seditious conspiracy trial looks like something where, gee, you could draw other people into it. Right? The other people, you know, this is just this group of five defendants. Um, but convict them, and we can see other people. You know, we've already, we've got the, the Proud Boys Seditious Conspiracy. We've got the Oath Keepers Seditious Conspiracy. All part of a broader, overarching seditious conspiracy with the same theory that I believe the government will use in these other cases. It began before January 6th, and it continued even after January 6th. So, that's basically what's happening in the Oath Keepers case. And I think that they are laying a sound case not only to convict the Oath Keepers themselves, um, but also potentially to draw other defendants in. Because in court, they are making connections that will become a matter of public record and a matter of, you know, legal documentation that appear incriminating to other people who were involved in January 6th. So this was not lobbying. Um, they're going to raise this, this, as I've talked about before, this issue of a legitimate security function, right? That they were somehow there to provide private security. Again, that's not a thing they're authorized to do. Yet they have no license to be security. You can't just walk in with your, uh, your plans to bring in guns from somewhere else. Um, and just, you know, volunteer as security. They don't carry insurance to do that. Um, again, if, if they were allowed to do what the defense wants to say that they are allowed to do, then anyone in any jurisdiction in the country could just go to any place, do whatever they wanted, and say, well, I anticipated that the president or the governor would mobilize me because I'm a militia, right? If you're a man of a certain age, you're a militia. I'm a militia. We're all militia. We can all be mobilized at any time, so therefore we do whatever we want in anticipation of the government mobilizing us. It's an absurd, crazy argument. Nonetheless, this is the hill that Stuart Rhodes is going to die on, and it's going to send him to, I have, hopefully, a federal penitentiary. We'll see. Reserve judgment on that, right? That is the problem with going in front of a jury. Um, you know, 
Maybe they, they don't get convicted of seditious conspiracy. Maybe they get one Trumpist on the jury who wants to hold out and says, no, that sounds, that sounds plausible to me. If that's the case, by the way, that would be so dangerous for law and order. Um, when you look at, I know I've talked about this before, but internationally, compared to politics, when paramilitary gangs become involved in your politics, that's a very dangerous situation. Didn't work out great in Weimar, Germany. Hasn't worked out great in Latin America. It's not working out great here. So that's a dangerous sign. And if the government can't shut this down in this seditious conspiracy trial, we're going to see more of it. We're going to see more far-right political violence precisely because um, failure to to fully prosecute this, a failure to achieve a conviction is an open invitation to uh, every person who has a grievance and a gun that they can go do whatever they want, wherever they want, in anticipation of some act that gives them the color of public authority. So, very dangerous. Now, the defense has also argued that the, they are, the government's cherry-picking what goes on the chat. Again, I refer to you in my four-and-a-half-hour, four-hour-long podcast. That's not cherry-picking, right? You can just go through line by line. There's almost no space of, you know, I mean, except when they're talking about the most banal things, there's almost no period of longer than a minute or two where somebody isn't saying something that in the context of their concrete actions, right, the two elements of the crime, the, the seditious actions, the opposing by force, and the seditious intent, it puts it all together. And if you look at the actual, con- you know, and the jury's going to have it, they can go through this and, like, unlike most of the American public, they have to read They're going to be forced to read They have to deliberate. And just like, no, no, oh, yeah, this is, oh, you, you just go through. And it's just all this... Um, it's not a locker room talk. They are deadly, deadly serious about it. And I think that, you know, as this trial goes on during election season, who knows? Will it have an impact? Uh, the Oath Keepers certainly have any number of political connections. I would not to be want to be a uh, someone who's been pictured with Oath Keepers in the past if I were running for office, except perhaps in the most deeply read, most seditionist parts of the country. And now I'd like to do something that I've been putting off doing for a while, uh, mainly because there have been so many developments in all these cases, and of course with the ongoing news stories. Uh, this is going to seem perhaps a bit like old wine in new bottles, because what I'm going to do is to review some of the defendants that I've profiled in previous episodes. They have had developments in their cases, and so I thought it might be interesting to do a bit of a where are they now on a select group of defendants. Now, long-time listeners will be familiar with my theory that uh, men with criminal histories may have been actively recruited to take part in January 6th. Uh, so since I've had a bit of an unscheduled break, um, and arrests, of course, have really slowed down, I just thought it would be a good time to review some of these records. Unfortunately, there's a bit of a low-yield activity. There's an awful lot of reading uh, to just wind up summarizing them and come up with you know, something that's relatively short for each of these defendants. Um, part of the reason why it is taking me so long to get this episode out. But in any event, um, hopefully 
you will find it interesting, interesting to revisit uh, some of these people and see where they are now. Now, again, my original interest with this class of defendant uh, began when I began to take a closer look at Avery McCracken, a homeless recidivist criminal I've talked about in the podcast many times before. He shared a lot in common with one of the very first defendants I covered, Shane Leedon Jenkins, the subject of the second podcast episode. And so, uh, you know, he had a long criminal history, lived far away from D.C., and yet somehow made his way to D.C., despite living far away. And so I identified a list of key characteristics, and a lot of these types of defendants uh, then became subjects of profiles on the podcast. So people who have long criminal histories, especially for violent offenses, people who have no fixed address or a history of residential instability, people who have had financial hardship and therefore, again, might have needed help getting to D.C., and or people who have been known to have solicited funding. Uh, although I didn't do a review of them, for example, the North Texas Patriot Boys, I did do a review of them, but I'm not, I'm not revisiting them. Um, Denny and Hazard, right, who solicited donations to go to DTC and wound up getting a donation of $1,000 from parties unknown to facilitate their trip to DC for January 6th. And so, um, you know, we also know that hiding behind violent normies was part of the strategy for the Proud Boys as they took part in the January 6th attack. And if you look at Jenkins's charging documents and his Twitter feed, um, Jenkins mentions the Proud Boys and wonders how to get in touch with them. But he's an isolated felon living in a halfway house operated by a Baptist ministry. And so, uh, you know, it's not easy for most average people to travel to D.C. on a random Wednesday in early January. But for people who have no fixed address, uh, long criminal histories, and financial hardships, it's going to be more difficult. And so, you know, the Proud Boys strategy relied on these radicalized normies engaging in violence. So, given that nothing in this overall plan had been left to chance, what kinds of efforts could be taken, you know, to get these kinds of men to D.C. on January 6th? They don't fit the profile of people who are typically heavily engaged in politics, but yet somehow were there to take part in political violence. And so I began to, began to look for men who fit that profile that, you know, I basically made up and found some of the defendants uh, that I've profiled already on the show. Now, at this point, there are probably other people who fit this profile who haven't noticed, and I do want to thank the many listeners who suggested defendants who have been likely subjects for inclusion. Um, I don't know if I have the strong version of this hypothesis really still going. I do know that, you know, I mean, there's some of them I'm very suspicious of, right? I mean, certainly Hazard and Denny, who we know, uh, did receive a contribution, and Etheridge, uh, who himself, you know, is not, didn't fit into the category of criminal history, but we know his way was paid, and, uh, you know, I've talked about that before, and I will talk about that later on. But in any event, whether or not they were paid to go to D.C. or not, um, many of these cases have been progressing along through the court system, and more information has become available in some of the court docs, 
documents and also there's just been there's just more information on the docket also these are some of the defendants given their nature of their def offenses who are looking at getting some of the most time out of any of the defendants in the January 6 cases because most of them are violent and also criminal history contributes uh, to what how much time you get at sentencing so I figure you know again if you have uh, it's, it's a good time to just review some of them. All right. So we'll begin with Daniel Adams. Now, Daniel Adams, uh, who, along with his cousin Cody, uh, faced eight charges, including AFO and the 1512 obstruction count. Now, Adams has some criminal history, and early on he was detained, but his cousin Cody wasn't. Adams was eventually released in December of 2021, and has apparently also found employment. Now, this is one of those cases, when you look at the docket, uh, it looks like it's headed to trial. Um, They're supposed to have had a status conference, but this was continued. So it looks like that proceeding is going to go forward on November 11th. What's weird is that uh, the entry says that uh, this hearing will be for sentencing. So even though I can't find anything about um, a plea deal, it says, quote, set reset hearings as to Cody uh, Page, Carter Connell, Daniel Page Adams, sentencing set for 11-16-2022 at 12 p.m. in telephonic VTC before Judge Paul Friedman. And so I haven't seen anything uh, showing that plea deal has been entered yet. Um, maybe that's my ineptitude. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but I don't, I think that this is a, a status, maybe it's a joint status conference slash sentencing conference. I'm not sure if it's a typo, but it, it does seem strange that there wouldn't be a, uh, a sentencing without plea deal being recorded. In any event, one way or another, um, Daniel Adams and his cousin, uh, their case is going to be resolved. Uh, hopefully fairly shortly. And again, it is odd, you know, I mean, the sentencing phase takes some time, so maybe they're moving ahead with all of that at the same time. All right, next is Zachary, or Zach Alam, uh, hashtag Helmet Boy. Now, this, of course, is a rather notable case. You'll remember him as the attacker who was breaking through the glass in the Speaker's lobby in the Capitol just moments before Ashley Babbitt tried to climb through. And Alam or ignored orders, uh, you know, uh, obviously, I mean, there are officers right there. He's not listening to them. And, you know, uh, Babbitt, of course, similarly, also ignoring orders and winds up going through the window and winds up catching a bullet. So, um, again, a, a defendant who's there for a rather important moment and whose acts in breaking windows appear to have indirectly led uh, to the death of uh, Ashley Babbitt. So Alam is from southeastern Pennsylvania, and that wouldn't mean that, you know, it's not difficult for someone like that in that uh, place, part of the country, to get to the Capitol. Now, according to the government's motion opposing bond, Alam has a history of failure to appear, and the government claimed that their investigation, quote, has also not revealed any steady employment by the defendant, end quote. Alam told investigators that he had lost his job as a hotel concierge because of COVID, but a witness who had helped Alam get that concierge job 
told the government that Alam simply hadn't showed up for work, and that's why he lost his employment. Now, the same witness also told the investigators that Alam lived, quote, various places, including with his mother, homeless shelters, and even in a rented storage unit. So this is someone who's, who's you know, again, his housing situation uh, is pretty precarious. Even though, if you look at the, the clothing he's wearing, even though he's dressed rather oddly, uh, he, he appears to be wearing some expensive sort of name brand uh, clothes. So, kind of incongruity there between how he's dressed, uh, how he's presenting, and, uh, you know, his, his housing arrangement. Now, according to the government, um, he has used, he's been charged with possessing stolen property, he regularly uses aliases, he is someone who has fake identification, so this is someone who is, uh, again, you know, sort of on the seedier side of things. Alam is currently housed at the Northern Neck Regional Jail in Warsaw, Virginia, and has been disruptive in court, and has sometimes expressed a desire to go pro se, i.e. without an attorney. My guess is that he's probably the kind of inmate who poses uh, correctional management difficulties for the staff at Northern Neck Regional Jail. I mean, if you're going to be disruptive in court, you're probably not going to be a model inmate. So, what's his trial date? I don't know. Now, Alam had been scheduled to go to trial in August, but that didn't happen. And part of the issue here appears to be that the government is still trying to crack his passwords. So they've taken his electronic devices, but um, they appear to be uncrackable. And they don't seem to want to go to trial until they have this evidence, but Alam won't open up his devices. So that's really strange. Um, but again, that's kind of what, as you'll see, that's, that's kind of an, an overarching theme with regard to many of these cases. Um, on August 15th, the government filed its statement of the case and also jury instructions. Uh, but then on August 18th, they vacated the August 29th trial date and the court mentions that Alam is going to need time to retain new counsel. So that's also another common theme that we're going to see with many of these defendants. They are hiring, firing their lawyers and hiring new ones. And that's resetting things an awful lot. Um, and weirdly, I don't know, it, it seems like the courts are, are treating this as, oh, well, this is just particularly this one case. No, no, that's something that they are all doing. And, you know, they're, I don't know if they're running out the clock deliberately or if these are just very hard to deal with people who, you know, um, their attorneys also find them hard to deal with. So, on September 2nd, Alam asked for 30 days to get new counsel, and um, he himself, of course, has, since very early days, been the subject of far-right conspiracy theories, much like we've seen for Ray Epps or John Sullivan, uh, you know, pointing out, well, he has well-to-do parents, so, you know, I think one of them works for the, the government, so it must be, you know, he's part of the deep state somehow. Um, people pointing out that uh, he appears to be of uh, Iranian or Persian descent. And so somehow, you know, well, that's clearly means something. Uh, somehow he can't be a real MAGA, right? Um, but 
Without his long criminal history and his res record of residential insecurity, yeah, he wouldn't be on the list. But, you know, I mean, he probably is what he seems to be, a spoiled rich kid who likes to get high and commit crimes and at some point went really down the rabbit hole of uh, far-right propaganda on the Internet and became radicalized, resulting, of course, in his current situation. Next, I'd like to talk about the defendant, uh, John Banuelos. I say defendant here, although actually, no, he's not. Uh, cal hashtag Calpoke. Now, this is a, another unusual case. You'll recall Banuelos as uh, a man who was photographed in the crowd on January 6th, carrying a uh, revolver in his waistband. And he was subsequently arrested in a stabbing death, uh, in a stabbing case in um, Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, actually, he was arrested and then released because the police determined that this was somehow self-defense. Now, Banuelos has an FBI number uh, on his bolo photo in connection uh, with an assault on the media. Uh, he also has a history of drug possession. And uh, again, you know, this stabbing was apparently a dispute over money, I believe $150. And uh, he's been arrested multiple times. Um, in, in fact, he'd been arrested two times between January 6th and the stabbing in July of 2021. Now, um, it is odd that this is someone who still has his bolo photo out there, right? Be on the lookout, unidentified person who's been committing crimes, but his identity is known. Um, I think Ryan Riley uh, wrote a, uh, an article on him, and his identity has been known to sedition hunters uh, for quite some time. Um, Banuelos has a rather large neck tattoo with the letters M-O-B, which oftentimes signifies membership in the Bloods Street Gang. So, Banuelos is a gang member, or a former gang member, and he stabbed at least one person to death, has a long criminal history, assaulted the media, allegedly, on January 6th, and probably officers as well, um, depending upon how they would want to charge him for those. Um, and yet, you know, there's nothing. Alright, so where's John Banuelos now? Now, I asked folks on Twitter if they had any idea, and uh, someone who's been keeping close tabs on him responded. So I want to thank them uh, for their service. Now, when Banuelos' residential status, according to uh, the source, when it was stable, he was a frequent poster on social media, and he used many different accounts with some slightly different versions of his name. He has a, a catchphrase uh, that he likes to use, and he also uses that. Um, since the dissolution of his marriage... All that posting has stopped, and he seems to have been, he's, he's on the wind. Uh, you know, he's drifting around, maybe he's sleeping rough, maybe he's uh, he's staying with relatives. Um, so, the person who I talked to was of the opinion that is is actually incorrect to call Banuelos a normie. Um, and it kind of makes sense, right? Because, you know, if I'm excluding gang members, this guy's got a gang tattoo on his neck. Uh, you know, why include him in this category? Nonetheless, it, it's still an interesting case. So, um, you know, and, and again, why did I do that? Well, why did I exclude people with gang connections? Probably because gangs can pool resources, right? 
uh, so they'd be less in need of, of any kind of assistance in getting to D.C. So, um, I also, you know, this person gave me a lot more information here than I can really go into here. But with family connections and possible gang connections, Banuelos could be really hard to find. Um, according to the, the, the search of court records this person ran, Banuelos had actually been arrested six times since January 6, 2020, all in Utah. And since he hasn't technically been charged, he's not technically even a fugitive, right? There's still a bolo. Look, be on the lookout for this unidentified person. So it's, it's a little more than, you know, it's just disheartening. And hopefully they will arrest Banuelos before he, he stabs anybody else. Next case is Tim Bowner. Hashtag Black Puffer White Scarf. Bowner is a, another AFO defendant, a sprayer who also assaulted officers with one of those, uh, the bike rack barriers. Now, he is very much at home on this list. Uh, he has a criminal history, and he, has, he lacks what the government describes as a, quote, stable living arrangement. Now, he is, in his criminal history, he got probation on his first offense, which was a felony conspiracy breaking and entering with intent charge, and then he violated probation about two months later. He did a year for that. And then he violated probation again. So other charges Bowner's had include misdemeanor larceny, possessing and receiving stolen property, felony assault with a dangerous weapon, reckless driving, open container, DUI, felony controlled substance, and misdemeanor domestic violence. So that's, that's a lot. This guy's been charged many times. And according to the government, quote, he appears to be mostly living in his car since January 6th and has been taking spontaneous road trips. Uh, again, on bond. Now, in what seems to be a common theme among January 6th defendants, Downer had an outburst in court during his pretrial det detention hearing, shouting, quote, you got these dumbass comments that you're saying that I said, but I did not say these things. Do we really have to go through all this? Quote, you guys don't know what happened. You really don't know what happened. You guys are going to believe what you guys want to believe. So, hey, it is what it is. Um, again, so he was originally uh, charged with eight counts. And actually, uh, you know, that during pre-trial detention here, I misspoke. He wasn't on bond at that point, um, but that was when they were trying to determine what to do with this guy, and they noted that this is a guy who, you know, is traveling a lot. That's not a good thing, and he actually is in pre-trial detention. He was awarded pre-trial detention uh, because if you, you know, mouth off at the judge during your detention hearing, you're probably not going to be granted bond at, at, at any point before trial. So the history uh, going through the docket in his case is a bit of a mess. Uh, he was assigned a trial date in May. Uh, that trial date was August 8th of this year. That didn't happen. In June, he signed a plea deal and was scheduled for a plea hearing on June 27th. At some point before the hearing, defense notified the court that Bowner was firing his public defender. And then the June 27th hearing winds up becoming a status conference, but then technical difficulties prevented Bowner from attending. And so they uh, 
scheduled another status conference for July 8th, but once again, technical difficulties prevented Bowner from attending. So they vacated the trial date. And in August, Michael Lawler was appointed to serve as Bowner's attorney. And it appears at some point, we don't know when, but at some point, about 30 days from September 30th, they are going to hold another status conference. So people wonder, you know, by the way, the government sometimes loses track of inmates, uh, let alone people they haven't caught yet. They sometimes lose track of actual inmates. Uh, you've got, in this case, a, a rather impulsive inmate who's probably not the sharpest tool in the shed in the first place. He's turning down plea deals. He's firing his attorneys. He's disruptive in court, uh, you know, and um, <laughs> without an attorney, you know, who's going to make sure that, uh, you know, you're, you're, everything moves forward? And right now he's just kind of in this limbo status. Uh, he's being held that we don't know what's happening um, you know, or even when his next status conference is going to be, but you know, they're, they're presumably they're, they're going to hold one. And based on similarly situated defendants, uh, Bowner looks like he's likely to get about five years if he pleads the same way many other people do, um, unless he goes to trial, right? In which case he could get more. Uh, so, I mean, really there's a sense in which there are no similarly situated defendants, um, because, you know, no one who's gone to trial really has the same kind of criminal history he has, and which some of the other defendants on this list have. All right, next is Michael Brock, uh, hashtag Sage Cop Whacker. So Brock faces a four-count indictment, including AFO with bodily injury and obstruction of law enforcement during civil disorder. Brock allegedly assaulted officers with, quote, a rod-like object. Now, he's had the luck to draw Trump appointee Carl Nichols. Um, Brock accused, is accused of assault on federal law enforcement with bodily injury, but is out on personal recognizance. Brock is one of those people uh, who switched attorneys. He used to be represented by John Pierce, but in April he switched, and he's now represented uh, by William Shipley. So, switching from one of the most notorious multiple defendant uh, January 6th attorneys to another. In May, Brock pleaded not guilty to all counts. On June 8th, Brock's trial date was set for June 5th, 2023. Now, that's a long time away, um, but we're not done. It, on September 15th, Shipley filed an unopposed motion to reschedule the trial as uh, he appears to have been appointed to represent a defendant in Hawaii in April 2023. So that trial, uh, you know, th there could possibly be overlap depending upon how long that trial is. That case, by the way, is for one Mike Miskey, who is a defendant in a murder case. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole. Uh, I'll link to a news article, but that's an interesting case completely unrelated to January 6th. Now, Shipley claims in his motion that he made an inadvertent scheduling error and so the AUSA, uh, Fedor, uh, agreed to change the schedule. So Shipley's also scheduled to represent Ronald Maccabee, uh, hashtag 3% sheriff, in his trial on September 15th, 2023. So the parties eventually wind up agreeing to put Brock on trial on October 16th, 2023. 
So this guy, you know, again, it apparently is, is taking a while to even get trial dates. And even at this point, you've got defendants whose trial dates are, you know, uh, a year away. All right. Next defendant, Matthew Capsule. Now, Capsule uh, allegedly physically engaged with National Guard on January 6th, getting into a shoving match rather late in the day. Capsule is a 29-year-old mover from Marseille, Illinois, and has a criminal history. Uh, there are some people, many people in the industry, perhaps, uh, who do. Um, and his wife filed a restraining order against him prior to January 6th. So on January 6th, also, uh, he wrote on an exterior wall of the Capitol, uh, but apparently wasn't charged with a graffiti-related offense. Again, allegedly wrote on the wall of the Capitol, even though he's not charged, but it is on video. Now, Matthew Capsule is a QAnon believer, and he's so strongly motivated by his cult membership, um, you know, that, of course, he took part in the attack. So where is he now? Well, he got an absolute gift from the government in that even though he had been charged with AFO, he was allowed to plead down to one felony count of obstruction of law enforcement during civil disorder on September 7th. So this is one of the people where we can definitively say, hey, something actually happened. We've got a resolution to the case, as opposed to these other cases where people are firing their uh, attorneys, getting dates vacated, and kicking the can down the road. So his sentencing is going to take place on Friday, December 16th at 3 p.m. in D.C. Now, the last document in his docket is a motion uh, for the U.S. Marshal Service to arrange for Capsule to pay for travel from Chicago to D.C. for sentencing. So what does that mean? In other words, he can't afford to travel from Chicago to D.C., even though apparently, of course, you know, he made it there on January 6th. But now... Uh, that's getting paid for by the Marshal Service. Um, interesting. Anyway, just, you know, if you go there to take part in an insurrection, why can't you pay to attend to make your court dates? All right, next defendant I'm going to cover is Landon Copeland. Hashtag Red Polo Rising. Now, Copeland is yet another fairly well-known defendant. Uh, he took a week off from work to drive to D.C. with other people, including his girlfriend. Copeland has a fairly long criminal history, including drug offenses, DUI, trespass, leaving the scene of an accident, property damage, carrying a concealed weapon, and failure to appear. Copeland faced four counts, including AFO. And on January 6th, he spent a bit of time fighting with police, attacking both Capitol Police and D.C. Metro Police, and was seemingly unfazed by O.C. spray. Uh, he was arrested in St. George, Utah, on April 29th, 2021. Now, Copeland already had pre-existing legal problems stemming from an arson incident and a violation of a protective order, and so was subject to pretrial detention in that case, in Utah. And at the same time, Copeland's attorney had concerns that Copeland wasn't competent to assist in his defense in his January 6th case. And Copeland himself had been disruptive in court, um, even though he was appearing remotely. So the defense asked the court to uh, authorize a forensic evaluation. 
Uh, let me give you a sample of why why it is that the defense asked for this. So this is a typical Landon Copeland courtroom moment. Quote, the defendant. I don't know who you are, but you are a robot to me. He's talking to the court. I am clear out here in the middle of the desert in no man's land. You can't come get me if I don't want you to. You can't come kill me if I don't want you to. You can't take nothing from me that I don't want you to. So I am going to say this. You are going to give me a psych eval. You are going to give me all kinds of shit. You are going to give me everything to protect my rights and make sure I am a stable individual that doesn't like this government coming and pointing guns at him and fucking stealing all his money. 70%, 70% of my income returns to my government through wealth distribution plans, through child support, through taxes. Fuck all of you. And I make $15 an hour. Fuck all of you. I'm telling you what. Come fuck with me. The court. Uh, Mr. Copeland? Mr. Corp Copeland? Ms. K, could you mute Mr. Copeland? The defendant. Come get me, fuckers! Come get me! So that's that's Landon Copeland. Kind of all you need to know about him. What an eccentric performance. Uh, now, as I mentioned in a previous episode, questions of competency often arise when defendants are disruptive. This is what's referred to as a 41-42 evaluation after the section of the uh, U.S. Code. Now, I did an episode on competency and sanity evaluations in the federal system back in August of 2021, Season 1, Episode 11, Truth and Competency. So, I don't know the code, for, you know, all that well. I actually um, know uh, a fair amount about this uh, just from, uh, you know, research and interest and things like that. Now, one thing that jumps out to me in the record is that his competency evaluation was conducted remotely. That is very unusual. I mean, even during COVID, the government usually prefers uh, for defendants to be transferred to the facilities where a Bureau of Prisons psychologist has continuous access to the defendant. And so in this way, not only the psychologist, but uh, other members of staff, um, you know, can make clinical observations. It's not limited to just one snapshot in a remote session. Um so, you know, I mean, I suspect COVID had something to do with this, but it, it's rather unusual. And also, I mean, the evaluations themselves were rather unusual. The, the psychologist performing them seems to have been a contract psychologist for the DC system um, because there's references made to payment, something that wouldn't be necessary if the government used one of their own psychologists. And the psychologist met with Copeland remotely twice, and that is very far from the kind of detailed, uh, you know, observations that are conducted in a 41-42 report. Now, ultimately, this psychologist believed that Copeland wasn't competent. Uh, but as I've explained earlier, it's actually up to the court to make that determination. Uh, the, the psychologist makes a ruling, but the actual determination of competency and sanity uh, in these kinds of evaluations is made by the court itself. Now, at this point, Copeland and his defense argues that Copeland was actually competent. So, odd, right? It was the defense that wanted the competency evaluation, and yet it, they turn around after they get the result of the recommendation of the psychologist, 
to say, no, no, he's he's actually competent. Now, oddly enough, this kind of, why, why would anyone do this, right? Why would they ask for a competency evaluation and then turn around and say, well, actually, no, I'm competent. Well, as I pointed out in that, that earlier episode, many defendants um, believe that, you know, going into the process, that they can use competency as a kind of legal get-out-of-jail-free card. But that's not how it works. So once you, a defendant is found incompetent, they actually have to go through something called a, a competency restoration program uh, to be declared competent. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. You don't just say, oh, you're free to go. And so some defendants go through the competency uh, process, they go through the evaluation process, and somebody, either their attorney uh, or even the psychologist, takes time to explain to them, this is how the process works. And the defendant realizes, oh, wait, um, this just means I'm in pretrial detention longer. This is actually a terrible idea. So uh, the court, despite what the psychologist says, uh, ultimately finds Copeland competent on August 20th, 2021. Now, the government, court, government also asked for Copeland to be detained uh, even though he had uh, been detained on violations of his uh, release, uh, again, for the Utah offense. Now, reading their motion to request pretrial detention, I noticed something that I had known, known earlier, uh, but it apparently slipped my mind, of course. Um, so he was arrested in St. George, uh, and that is, uh, he's actually from Short Creek. So St. George is actually a nearby town, and of course, uh, if you're familiar with the FDLS, Short Creek is that town on the Arizona-Utah uh, border that is most infamously associated with the cult that is led by Warren Jeffs, who is currently serving 20 to life on charges of uh, eating and abetting sexual assault against a child. Um, now, I checked. Uh, Copeland isn't actually one of the most common names, uh, the surnames, in the FLDS community there, but it's a name that sometimes appears in that context. For example, there is a Mark Copeland who is listed as someone who's been kicked out of the FLDS in one of Warren Jeffs's various purges, if you're at all familiar with uh, the, the bizarre things that have happened uh, in short, the Short Creek community. It's actually a very common podcast topic, oddly enough. Uh, so, a bit of a digression there. Um, don't know, you know, I mean, obviously the FLDS have a history of kicking out young men because, uh, you know, when your whole culture is built around marrying 14-year-old girls to 70-year-old men, then you have a, a surplus population of young men that you need to do something with. You know, uh, was Copeland one of those? I, I don't know. I mean, that's just um, speculation on my part. Anyway, I digress. On September 10th, 2021, Copeland was ordered detained. So, where is he now? On May 2nd, 2022, Copeland pleaded guilty to one count of assaulting a federal officer. So, he's still going through the sentencing process, um, and now they're looking at his mental health history and uh, looking at how that is going to determine his criminal responsibility. So mental health can take place, you know, different parts. It impacts sanity, it impacts competency, um, and it also can be a factor that is used 
at sentencing. And certainly it's a factor determining where the individual is eventually going to be housed. Um, people who have a, a higher care level with regard to their mental health needs wind up oftentimes being housed at uh, facilities that have better access to mental health services on site. So once he goes through that process, Landon Copeland is finally going to get sentenced in December of 2022. Next defendant I'd like to profile is Tyler Etheridge, uh, hashtag Pastor Parlor. Uh, Etheridge is a much more re recent arrest than many of the others here, and so it wasn't all that long ago that I profiled him for the show. Listeners will remember him as the Florida youth pastor who had been a standout star in high school and at Cheris Bible College in Woodland Park, Colorado, in, uh, I believe, six-man football. Now, he wasn't particularly violent, um, but he's on the list that uh, mainly because he was someone who was affiliated with his alma mater at Cheris Bible College, uh, which, again, was funded, founded and operated by Andrew Womack. Uh, someone from that institution paid his way to D.C. So there's really not that much to update here, um, but if you do want to keep track of what Tyler Etheridge has to say, you can keep track of him at Ty underscore Etheridge 13 on Twitter. Uh, he is still posting Trumpy nonsense such as this. Quote, We are not in Billy Graham's America anymore. When the government functions like Ahab and Jezebel, you need an Elijah-like faith. End quote. Quote, Some people want me to play my cards right so I could potentially meet Trump. I don't give two poos about meeting him. I would rather meet my fellow J6ers and tell them I love them and how much God loves them. End quote. Now, if he really wants to meet his J6ers, you know, probably the best way to meet them um, is inside federal prison, of course. So he's just another, yet another defendant who seems incapable of using good judgment and just being quiet for a while, right? I mean, if you know you're eventually going to have to accept a plea, you probably shouldn't be making inflammatory statements on social media where you basically endorse your actions. Seems like the kind of thing that might come back at you when it comes time for sentencing, because, of course, even if you delete them later, somebody is probably saving all of them. All right, next defendant, John Gordon, hashtag in God I trust writer. Now, Gordon is another defendant who has uh, been the subject of a defendant profile on the show. And he is notable, of course, like many others, for having a long criminal history. Uh, he has involved felony drug use, uh, firearms offenses, and uh, in his home state of Pennsylvania. Um, and he also, well, he lives Pennsylvania, West Virginia area. Um, and he also has a large tattoo covering his bald scalp, which includes the phrase, In God I Trust. Now, I did a profile of him when he was arrested last July, and he's charged with six counts, including civil disorder and uh, an act of physical violence on capital grounds. So... A recent arrest, relatively recent arrest, he is currently out on personal recognizance, so there's not a lot on the record for John Gordon. Next is Alex Harkrider, hashtag Alex Harkrider. 
Park Ryder is charged in a 13-count indictment with his co-defendant, Ryan Nichols, who famously stands for violence. Uh, he's the one who went back to his hotel room. Looked like he was on something, to me anyway. And, uh, you know, Hark... Uh, Sorry, Nichols is like, I stand for violence. Ryan Nichols stands for violence. Didn't even use a, the, the pronoun. Apparently, you know, pronouns bad, right? Uh, Ryan Nichols stands for violence. Anyway, Hark Riders arrested in January of 2021, and his defense attorney, Kira West, has been particularly vigorous. Uh, she's filed many different motions, many of which are, are rather colorful, and I don't mean that as a euphemism for vulgar. I just mean that she's been rather creative and florid in her language. Uh, she's filed just about every kind of motion you can file. Change of venue, motions to exclude evidence, motion to attempt uh, public authority defense, motions to dismiss, etc. So, you know, if his case is ever challenged on appeal, it's not going to be on the basis of ineffective counsel. West has done a lot of work on this case. Hark Ryder is a full-time volunteer who lives on military disability. Uh, which West characterized in one motion as, quote, less than the monthly lawn service fees for many Washington, D.C. residences, end quote. One of the latest uh, motions that was filed in the case was for a modification of conditions of release, permitting Harkrider to travel to Florida to assist with Hurricane Ian relief efforts, as he's been allowed to do at other times, uh, and volunteering with the so-called Cajun Army, Relief volunteers. So, Hark Rider, of course, uh, you know, again, uh, financial hardship defendant, right? And if someone wanted to pay his way, you know, this is someone who operates with all these charities. It would be very easy to make a donation. Um, although, again, you know, he's very much used to travel for hurricane relief and things of that nature. Um, you know, but somehow wound up. Uh, involved in January 6th. So the most notable development in the Harkrider case is that two trial dates have come and gone. Judge Hogan, who had sought to have the trial held around November 1st, now seems likely to not achieve that goal. The government and defense are filing the, all the various things that they need to do to go to trial, but as of currently, he doesn't have a trial date. And the one that he was supposed to have in November has been vacated. So he's another one who's in a kind of indeterminate state at the current point in time. All right, next, Shane G. Jenkins, Shane Leiden Jenkins of Texas, hashtag window breaker, uh, who's also on Twitter at redtattoo179. So old friend Shane Leiden Jenkins, so, well, if you have friends who are, you know, traitors, but uh, subject of my second episode, and one of the reasons why I wanted to revisit some of these defendants. Jenkins, of course, has a conviction for uh, resisting arrest in his home state of Texas, and a long laundry list of eight other offenses in his criminal history. Jenkins was living in a halfway house run by a Baptist church uh, when he made the decision to travel to D.C., to take part in the attack on January 6th. Uh, he originally faced nine counts, including AFO, and due to his criminal history, is one of the defendants who ultimately may face one of the longest sentences, in common with some of the other defendants here. Um, now, in one document, the government estimates he may face somewhere between 120 and 150 months. 
So you can see why he might not want to accept a plea. That's a, that's a lot of time. So Jenkins had been represented by John Pierce, who uh, is notorious for representing many of these defendants, and also for making, you know, I don't want to say loony, but some rather odd arguments in court. Jenkins was left hanging uh, during a status hearing in August of 2021 when Pierce failed to appear in court. There was this uh, period where there were rumors that, well, he had COVID. Uh, he was having, like, I, I think a paralegal handle cases in court. And apparently uh, Jenkins just decided to fire Pierce at that time, probably a, a smart move. And so he got a new lawyer. And Pierce formerly withdrew from the case in December of 2021. All right, so where is Shane Jenkins now? He is still detained in the D.C. jail. And on September 26, 2022, um, Jenkins was hit with a second superseding indictment, basically consisting of all the old charges, plus the 1512 count of obstruction of an official proceeding. So he now faces 10 counts, including an additional felony. And even though the DCD is trying to give precedence to defendants in pretrial detention, Shane Jenkins has already had a trial date vacated, in part because he, you know, he, he fired John Pierce. And um, he also happens to be in Judge Maida's court. And Maida is one of the judges with the busiest courtrooms in the DCD. So Shane Leiden Jenkins' trial date is set for March 21st, 2023. Jenkins was arrested in March of 2021, so he will have been in pretrial detention for over two years uh, before he eventually goes to trial, if indeed he doesn't accept a plea before then. So, you know, the Speedy Trial Act and Sixth Amendment are kind of paper tigers. I mean, the justice system in the United States doesn't primarily operate on trials, but for plea bargains. Now, for years, I've always wondered what would happen if even a slightly higher proportion of defendants chose to uh, avoid a plea bargain, and to uh, have a jury trial. And that's what we're seeing in the DCD. It is rack wreaking chaos in the docket there. And so uh, you're seeing defendants, even committed defendants, having to wait a, a very long time for trial. Although, again, for someone like Jenkins, who if convicted faces at least 10 years, possibly more, it's just going to, you know, He's going to be in, in prison no matter what. Um, and, you know, he, though, I think is, I mean, in if you look, read his statements, he actually um, is someone who got kind of used to prison life in his, his prior, um, you know, he's expressed great love for the men on the inside of the, the prison walls and uh, as a feeling of solidarity. And uh, now he's being housed in, on a unit with, uh, you know, entirely like-minded people, um, you know, I mean, he's, he's in his element. I mean, a lot of the other prisoners aren't used to being incarcerated. Jenkins certainly is. So, you know, um, eventually, of course, when he's gets put wherever the, the DC, uh, the, sorry, the BOP decides to put him, um, you know, he probably won't have that same feeling of camaraderie. Uh, because as we've seen, as I talked about in an earlier episode, they are breaking them up. They're distributing them around the country. And there's no more than like two or three or four 
inmates uh, from January 6th in any given facility, with the exception, of course, of Northern Neck Regional Jail, and then oh, that's an IBFP facility, and um, the, the D.C. jail. All right, next defendant I'd like to talk about is Albuquerque Head. That's right, his first name is Albuquerque. I've talked about him before. Hashtag unlucky13. Um, and again, a long criminal history, uh, long history of, of financial hardship. Uh, Albuquerque Head is from Kingsport and Johnson City, Tennessee, and was arrested on April 9th, 2021, and uh, faced 13 counts. So, Albuquerque Head is remarkable for being the very first defendant to seize Officer Michael Fanon uh, at the entrance to the Lower West Tunnel and pull him out into the mob, where he was viciously attacked. So, he's part of that, you know, vicious assault on Officer Fanon, one of the most notorious offenses committed by these defendants on January 6th. So, where is he now? Well, on April 26, 2022, Albuquerque had pleaded guilty to one count of assaulting a federal officer. Head was scheduled to be sentenced on September 30th, but that, of course, as we've seen, uh, look at the D.C. docket, all their problems, that's been vacated, because uh, that's just, you know, how it is nowadays. It's hard to find a suitable date. So, at some point, presumably in the near future, don't know when, Head is going to be sentenced. So, taking into account the enhancements for a serious bodily injury, the restraint of victim, and the fact that the victim was a government official, and Albuquerque has extensive criminal history, he is facing 77 to 96 months. So anywhere from six years, five months, to eight full years in prison at sentencing. Now, problem here is that, uh, at least as I see it, is that Head is being tried in Amy Berman Jackson courtroom. Uh, she is someone who gives great lectures. Um, and I know she has fans. She's very stern in court. But her sentences oftentimes don't actually match up with her stern words. And in my mind, this is a perfect opportunity for her to really redeem herself. She is a defendant with a long criminal history, uh, and who also instigated what is one of the most high-profile assaults on an officer on January 6th. And Albuquerque Head doesn't have a lot of redeeming qualities. He has 12 points of criminal history. So Amy Berman Jackson gave his co-defendant, Kyle Young, seven years at sentencing, saying, quote, you are one of the most serious January 6th offenders in my caseload, and you were personally involved in and instrumental to one of the most horrific attacks on officers encased in this building. Another quote, I have seldom in my years on the bench been presented with anything like this. End quote. And yet, um, Kyle Young didn't get the maximum, and I don't know that Albuquerque Head is going to get the maximum either. But, you know, at a minimum, um, he's probably looking at the amount of time that Young got. Uh, although, who knows? You know, maybe this will be the time where she decides to, uh, you know, give him uh, eight years. 
that would be, you know, and that's eight years according to guidelines, right? He could do more than that. But upward deviations are rare. Arguably, this would be one instance where I think it, it would be deserved. But that seems unlikely because what she does is to, um, you know, give them a very stern lecture. But then, you know, not as much time as potentially they could get. Not, you know, again, eight years is a long time, right? I mean, you know, um, if Mr. Head winds up getting that, I don't think most people would be displeased with that sentence. I'm sure Michael Fanon would have some choice words about him, uh, you know, one way or the other, right? I mean, they're just, I mean, Head, it's like, you know, he was like, oh, I'm helping you out, bro. You know, no, you're not helping. You're you just, what a scumbag. Anyway, next defendant, Josiah Kenyon, hashtag pinstripe boiler suit. Talked about him many times before. Kenyon was arrested in Reno, Nevada on December 1st, 2021. On January 6th, Kenyon uh, wore a Jack Skellington costume, character from The Nightmare Before Christmas. And Kenyon was charged with nine counts, including AFO with a dangerous or deadly weapon, and also taking a part on attacking a window, uh, the replacement cost of which was $41,315.25. So Kenyon traveled to January 6th with his family and was living in his car with his kids at the time of his arrest. As a matter of fact, I believe it was a welfare visit by social services, uh, at which point was the sort of um, incident which led to his arrest. So where is he now? Josiah Kenyon accepted a plea deal on September 14th, 2022, pleading guilty to the AFO charge, um, which again, seems to be the standard deal. They give them like, you know, nine or 10 or 13 different counts and then let them plead to the most serious felony count with a few exceptions, right? Um, sometimes they, 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 have, they have offered something lesser like, uh, you know, obstruction of law enforcement during civil disorder rather than uh, AFO charge. In any event, um, according to his plea deal, Kenyon's estimated offense level is 28, which is very high, uh, and that's mainly due to enhancements for using a dangerous weapon, which in this case was a table leg, um, and also because he inflicted bodily injury, and also because it was, uh, as in all these AFO cases, an official victim. So the next step is that Kenyon will go through the pre-sentencing process, but the range given in his plea agreement is 78 to 97 months. So from six and a half years to eight years, one month. Um, so that's where Kenyon is now. He's undergoing the pretrial sentencing investigation and they're going to hold a sentencing uh, presumably sometime in the next upcoming months. All right, next defendant, Avery McCracken, hashtag covered dragon. Now, again, I know I've talked about him many times, including earlier in this podcast. Uh, mainly because he appears in a posed photo from the fall of 2020, where he appears with Lauren Boebert, who looks to be handing him $100 bills uh, for working on her successful campaign to run for the House in the 3rd District of Colorado, a district that happens to include Telluride, where McCracken mostly resides, mostly. Now, and I know this is, again, uh, probably not new to listeners of the podcast. McCracken has a long criminal history, was well known to local law enforcement, often sleeps in his car, 
and seems to own only one set of clothes, and yet somehow flew to D.C. on January uh, for January 6th on a commercial flight before returning to Colorado on January 9th. And again, that was the detail that got me started on this rabbit hole of defendants. McCracken was also detained pre-trial. Now, as I mentioned in, in an episode earlier this past summer, something very unusual happened in the case against McCracken. His charges were actually downgraded. In his original statement of facts, it is reported that McCracken assaulted an officer, Officer J.G., an MPD officer, and Officer J.G. sustained a cut under his right eye and documented with this with photos. The FBI then reviewed the body camera fo footage and that appeared to corroborate Officer J.G.'s account. Now, it's a detail that's uh, not a detail that's mentioned, but it's completely understandable why Officer J.G. might have sustained a cut to his face uh, from his interaction with McCracken, or rather the assault by McCracken, because McCracken is wearing large metal rings on the ring fingers of both hands uh, in photographs taken on January 6th. So McCracken was charged with seven counts, including AFO with bodily injury, in January of 2022. On March 18th, Judge Faruqi ordered that McCracken be transferred from the Northern Neck Regional Jail back to Colorado on the basis of his ill health. Um, there's a bit of a kerfuffle. On March 29th, an emergency motion was filed ordering the Marshal Service to transport McCracken back to Colorado as they apparently had not done so in a sufficiently speedy manner. On May 5th, the parties filed a joint motion for bond, i.e. the government and the defense both agreed to file a motion for bond on the basis that the government now believed that the laceration on Officer J.G.'s face was not caused by McCracken. Again, I've talked about this earlier. It's odd, right? You have the FBI look at the camera footage and say, yep, that makes sense. If you look at the rings on McCracken's center, uh, his fingers, his ring fingers, makes sense. It makes sense why that cut may have been sustained during that interaction. Nonetheless, they have decided to drop the bodily injury component of that charge. So, very odd. Um, and over the summer, two different status conferences were continued with the parties reporting that plea negotiations were underway. So, again, McCracken transferred back to Colorado. Um, mentioned in the court documents, I suspect he may be in some kind of facility, uh, perhaps a residential treatment for his history of substance abuse, um, or perhaps a homeless shelter. Um, you know, we don't, necessarily know. Uh, he's under a pretty strict supervision at any rate. So where does the case stand now? Uh, they held a remote status conference before Judge Leon on October 4th, and a date was set for a joint plea and sentencing hearing on December 12th, 2022. So um, McCracken and the, you know, the defense and the government appear to uh, have reached an arrangement and they're going to get it all resolved in December of 2022. Now, I have no idea uh, what the ultimate outcome may be uh, from the docket. It looks like McCracken has some some health issues, which might be expected from his age. In fact, that he's lived on the streets off and on uh, for at least 
20 years. So, you know, the usual pattern has been that um, the defendant uh, will accept a, a plea to the most serious charge against him. And in McCracken's case, that would be assault on a federal officer, but now without the bodily injury component. Although, again, you never know. Uh, maybe they'll let him plead to obstruction of law enforcement during civil disorder. In any event, with his criminal history, uh, you know, it looks like McCracken will be going to jail for, you know, uh, quite a long time. And he is a, a rather elderly man. The next defendant I'd like to talk about is James McGrew. Uh, hashtag grayscale screamer. So I profiled him in an earlier episode. He is an AFO defendant. Uh, who has the words King James tattooed on his abdomen and a long criminal history. Uh, in May of 2021, he was charged in a 10-count indictment. So McGrew pleaded guilty to uh, assault on a federal officer in May, and he's since then had a number of continuances for his sentencing hearing. Uh, McGrew appears to have some health issues, but much of that information is under seal, so don't know what's going on there. His base offense level is 21, but his criminal history level is Category 5. So James McGrew is eligible for 70 to 87 months under the guidelines. And it looks like all the necessary paperwork to proceed with sentencing has been completed. And so he is on track to make his court date for his sentencing hearing on November 17th, 2022. So yet another defendant who looks like they will be going away very soon for a rather long period of time. Final defendant I'd like to talk about uh, who I've profiled on the show before is Sean McHugh. Uh, Sean McHugh was charged at 10-count superseding indictment in November of 2021, including a charge of AFO as uh, he allegedly sprayed police with an entire can of a product known as Frontiersman Bear Attack and Deterrent. McHugh has been subject to pretrial detention, uh, again, mainly due to his violence against officers and his extensive criminal history. Now, the defendant was well known to local authorities in California, it's from the Sacramento area, and he has a statutory rape conviction from 2010. So quite naturally, of course, he's a QAnon guy, uh, projection, it's a thing, and he claimed that police on January 6th were, quote, protecting pedophiles. Now, he's had the usual motions, motions to dismiss, which were rejected, motions for a change of venue, which were rejected, etc. and so forth. So, this is yet another case where it's gone back and forth, and it's gone forward and back. Uh, in May, it looked like McHugh was going to go through the process of negotiating a plea. But all of that now seems to be over. McHugh fired his public defender and retained one Joseph Allen as an attorney, and it looks like he's going to trial. In some of the earlier continuances and the various motions, there's language stipulating that the defense would not be filing any more motions. They're basically done. But oddly enough, that's, that's all over with. Um, his new attorney has filed yet another motion to dismiss, one that is basically uh, the same motion to dismiss on the same basis that was already rejected by the court back when he had a different attorney back in May. Um... Uh, you know, basically alleging, well, the charges are insufficiently specific. Again, this is someone who is charged with assaulting officers and who unleashed an entire can of bear spray against them, allegedly. Um, so, I don't think it's going to work out great for Sean McHugh. 
right? I mean, he's... This is really looks like a just delay after delay after delay in, in his case. And he seems determined not only to go to trial, but really also to piss off the judge. I mean, there's, there's no other explanation uh, for this kind of behavior to say, well, I'm going to, you know, motion to dismiss, denied, you know, okay, well, I'll, and maybe I'll take a plea bargain. Okay, oh, nope, I'm going to fire my attorney, I, you know, reset the clock, get a new court date, and then fire new motion to dismiss, which is basically the same as the old motion to dismiss that the court already rejected. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that that is going to go particularly well for this defendant. And again, with his criminal history, uh, you know, he's also, again, looking at serious time. All right, so I thought it would be good to get caught up on some of these cases. Of course, there are, there are others, uh, but, but for time, I think uh, I will leave it at that. Now, uh, I will be trying to respond as, as quickly as I can to the ninth public hearing to be held on October 13th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you have a chance, uh, you know, you can watch that live. As I like to remind people, uh, there's also C-SPAN, which has will, will carry a link to the hearing. That link will also have a transcript, which is uh, very convenient because it is keyword searchable. That is one of the functions I use. NPR also um, uh, produces a transcript of every hearing, so be sure to look for that as well. Um, when I eventually do do the episode covering the ninth hearing, and I, again, I'm not sure how long that will take, because I really have no idea what they're going to discuss, um, we will be, I will post those to the link in the next episode's show notes. So that is what I anticipate talking about in the next episode, and I will also get caught up on any developments in the Oath Keepers trial, uh, which will resume on Tuesday of this week. Thank you so much for your, your listenership. I hope you have a happy Indigenous Peoples Day. And um, I, as you probably do too, looking very much forward to the ninth public hearing. Also, of course, midterm election uh, is ongoing. Uh, so please do make sure you're registered to vote. Get your friends out, register to vote. Canvas if you can. I always tell people canvassing is the one most important volunteer activity that you engage in. Um, the response to face-to-face -face interaction with someone from the campaign uh, is the one of the best predictors of actual voting behavior. So democracy is definitely on the ballot. And if you are able and you have the time and the capability, uh, please do get out there, knock some doors, and uh, hopefully... Uh, we'll have a good outcome in November. Thank you so much, and look forward to talking with you as soon as I possibly can.